Shakespeare put these words in the mouth of his character Juliet and words that you're very familiar with and she stands on the balcony and bids goodnight to her fair Romeo. She says, parting is such sweet sorrow. Um, and and, and the, the parting is sorrowful because goodbyes are sorrowful, especially for young lovers. Um, but it's also sweet because it makes them think about the next time that they'll see one another again. And so parting is such sweet sorrow. If there's no hope of seeing one another again, then that parting isn't isn't sweet at all. It's only sorrowful. And so 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 it, it doesn't it doesn't have that hope and that sweetness. But Jesus captures this this feeling, this what Shakespeare is trying to communicate. We Jesus captures it a lot better here in in this part of uh, the Upper Room Discourse in John 16. And last Sunday we saw this. Jesus spoke about uh, very clearly again about His departure. He's about to go away. And yet, in a little while, they're going to see Him again. And He told them that their sorrow would be turned into joy when they come together again after His resurrection. They would have a kind of joy that no one could ever take away from them. And so, does that mean that then that for these 11 disciples and even for us today, that life is just kind of a bowl of cherries and after the resurrection, everything's just smooth sailing, easy going, no problems in this life because just nothing but elation and happiness and pleasure. Uh, far from it. That they and we will be hated on account of Jesus. Jesus has made that very clear. Face all kinds of afflictions. But, but what he assures them is that in the midst of all of that affliction, you can know real, substantial joy and peace. And, the, and this joy and this peace is, is built upon the bedrock of the empty tomb that we looked at last week. And so we come to the end of Jesus' upper room discourse. It feels like we just began. I, I we'll have the prayer and in, in chapter 17, but this, these are the, the closing words of teaching that Jesus gives to His disciples here and with the eleven in this upper room. And, and again, as the chapter closes, He's going to, or in, in chapter 11, He's going to pray to the Father for them and then they're going to go out to Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested. And so He knows this is His farewell teaching to them. This is their last conversation like this, where he ins- he's going to instruct them. So these words carry incredible weight. Last words are always substantial. I mean, you can think probably of famous farewell speeches. I just know all the U.S. presidents, that last speech they give uh, from the Oval Office and communicating to the nation and giving that farewell, uh, that, that, those are always weighted words. There's something significant that they're saying. I, I think one of the most famous farewell speeches I can think of was Lou Gehrig's uh, famous farewell speech where he talks about being the luckiest man on earth and you know the privilege of playing in these baseball parks and playing this sport that he, he loves and the fans have been such an encouragement and so kind to him and this crippling disease and he had to stop. But, I, but you, you can think of those, those, again, if you know this is the last thing you're going to be able to say, it, it carries substantial weight. And this is exactly what we find with Jesus. And so as Jesus instructs and comforts His, his closest friends, His closest followers, these 11 remaining disciples, he, he, he shows them, this is what He really focuses on, He shows them that the triune God, 
God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is working for their good and for their help. We saw, we saw already that the Spirit will come to convict the world and will guide the church. And the Son will, by means of His resurrection, change their sorrow into joy. And now the Father, in, in these last verses, will continue in steadfast love for them and for us. And there's no less than eight references to the Father in this short paragraph that we're going to see this morning. We just read. So the, the very last words... Jesus speaks to them in this upper room before he goes to his death. They're very sobering, but it's also, there's this strong and clear note of victory. And that's how it ends. I have overcome the world. And, and, and so this is, again, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Do we have tribulation? Or, or afflictions or pressures. That's the idea of this word. Constantly we do. But, take heart. I have overcome the world. And the key imperative that Jesus speaks to them, this is, this is the, the charge that He really wants them to get, is that last command. Take heart. Or He could say, be of good cheer. That's maybe a little dated. Have courage. Take heart. Be, in, be in heartened. Strong hearts. There's... There's one immediate and direct reason for that courage, and it's that Jesus has and or, or will overcome the world, and we'll talk about why he says it the way he does. But but there are multiple reasons in this short paragraph that give us uh, that, that that tell us that we should we shouldn't lose heart in the midst of affliction, and so we're going to see those this morning. Five reasons we should take heart in a trouble-filled world. That's what we'll see today. Five reasons we'll take. Take heart in a trouble-filled world. First reason is that we benefit from clear communication. We benefit from clear communication. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. This is kind of a strange thing for Jesus to say to them. He admits that he's been speaking to his disciples in rather veiled words. He's been kind of not, not speaking perfectly crystal clear. In these figures of speech and in this veiled language. These things, he says, these things that he spoke that night, but he probably hasn't referenced his teaching throughout his ministry. He's, he's looking back and saying, yes, I've spoke with veiled words. He spoke about raising the temple in three days. What does that mean? He spoke about being born again. Living water that quenches thirst once and for all. Rivers of water flowing within believers. People who will never see death. He talked about that believers must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He said that he preceded Abraham in time. He said that he's the good shepherd who lays down his own life for the sheep. Most recently in this upper room, he talked about a vine and branches. About Christ is leaving and yet he will never leave them alone. And the pregnant mother, we saw this last week. And so now though, Jesus says, it's, it's, it's going to change. The, day, the hour is coming when I'm not going to speak like this and figures of speech and this veiled language. The hour is coming when He will speak very plainly to them. When is this hour that Jesus is talking about? 
He may be talking about the time after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will come, who will, who will come and He will indwell permanently all believers and He will guide the, particularly those eleven apostles into the truth and to, to the explanation of, of, of God's Word. That certainly that's in mind. I think more immediately though, He's probably referring to those forty days after His resurrection, before His ascension. According to Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, It was then that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So we had this period of intense teaching after the resurrection when He's clearly laying out for the disciples what what the Scriptures teach about His Father and about His Father's redemptive plan. And so after His resurrection, the Father, His whole plan of salvation is is really opened up to them. What His sufferings really accomplished. And so we can see this promise clearly fulfilled in the Scriptures. I mean, you, you look at the confusion of the disciples through the, throughout the Gospels that we've been seeing and the questions that they're asking and the, and the just kind of the haze on their eyes. They don't, they don't seem to get what Jesus is saying. He keeps having to repeat Himself. And, and even when they seem to get it, you realize later, no, you didn't really understand what I was talking about. And, and they're, they're very slow to get it. But then you move through and you see as these apostles begin to write the letters of the New Testament and the clarity with which they thought and taught about the good news of Jesus Christ and the epistles. And it's, it's just so clear. This didactic teaching. And so we see Christ's words come to fulfillment. But the, the Father and His plan of redemption, they're, they're set forth in the clearest of terms in passages like Romans 3, 21-25, and Romans 5, and grade 8, and, and in Ephesians 1, 3-14, and Philippians 2, 9-10, and, and 1 Peter 1, 3-12, and 1 John 3, and on and on. You have these just crystal clear passages of, of what the Father is doing and sending the Son and in this plan of redemption that was so fuzzy to the disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry, but then they get it. There's clarity. It says that the hour is coming when I will speak very clearly. And so the, the first disciples, again, back in the context of this upper room, this is pre-clarity though. And so, so what Jesus is saying is they can take heart knowing that their confusion will give way to clarity. And they would receive clearer revelation from Christ that they would eventually write down for the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can take heart in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of this trouble-filled world, because they received such clear instruction from Christ. And they wrote it down in this God-breathed book, the Bible. And so our hearts can be encouraged in this trouble-filled world because we know God in, as, as revealed so clearly in His Word. We can, and, and we have the Spirit who illuminates it for us. So what, what just brothers and sisters, you, you, when you walk through trials and you walk through sufferings, what help, what comfort, what, what encouragement the Scriptures are to us. We're not, we're not limited to confusing, uh, unclear, inconsistent ramblings of religious men about God. This is, this is not what, we're, what we have. We have been given clear, consistent, compelling revelation about God from Himself. This is His Word to us. And so in times of trouble, we, we have to keep our lives tethered to this immovable anchor of His Word. 
So we've got to read the Bible. We meditate upon His truth. This is life to us. This is our stability. This is what gives us courage in the midst of very troubling times. It's solace for our souls. Not because it will tell you everything about the circumstance in your life and why this bad thing is happening to you right now. That's not, that's not the comfort. But the comfort is, is that it clearly reveals God to us. It reveals our Father, who He is, what He's like. And we can trust Him and love Him and, and adore Him. And so that's the comfort the Scriptures give it. And we have this clear revelation of God. That's the first reason we, we, can, we can take heart in a trouble-filled world. Second reason we can do this is we have the privilege of prayer. We have the privilege of prayer. Verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now let's just stop right there. He's already told these many, these men many times that they're to pray, they're to ask the Father in His name, in Jesus' name. We saw it in chapter 14 and verse 13, chapter 15, verse 16, chapter 16, earlier in this chapter, uh, last week, verses 23 and 24. So here Jesus makes it even clearer what He means when He says this. And He's showing that the Father is not distant or removed from them. It's not like when they pray and when they ask, they've got to kind of work their way up the chain of command before they can get to the Father. So, we'll ask you, Jesus, and Jesus, if you would be so kind to take our request to the Father and go to Him. We know we can't go directly to the Father, but if, we can, if you can kind of represent us before the Father, Jesus, that would be terrific. But that's not it. What Jesus is saying, no, you can, you can go directly now to The Father, in Jesus' name, we have open access to God Almighty, to the Father, for those who love Christ and believe in Him. In other words, again, they don't have to go to Jesus to get get Jesus to request to the Father. After Christ dies and rises again and sends the Spirit, they, they can simply say, Father, and Almighty God hears. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, for, for, for us, in, in the midst of, of a world of, of affliction, in this world you have tribulation, you have pressures, you have afflictions, we, we can just say, Father, and, and He hears. That's great encouragement. That helps my heart to be encouraged. But, but now, we know that Jesus does intercede for us as our great high priest, and He makes constant intercession for us, the Scriptures teach. That never stops. Our, our approach to the Father rests upon Christ's finished work, which He constantly pleads on our behalf. So that's, it's not, those are not in contradiction. So in one sense, we could say that Jesus prays for us, but in another sense, He doesn't pray for us. And what I mean is He, he prays for us in the sense that He makes unceasing intercession for us in heaven as our high priest. But He doesn't pray for us in the sense of, of, of asking before the Father in our place because we don't have access. He doesn't do that. Jesus is saying, we, you, don't, you don't have to persuade a reluctant Heavenly Father to be gracious to you and to hear you and to answer you. You ask in my name before the Father and He hears. And He responds. He loves us. He delights in us. He, and, 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 and through Christ He gives us free direct access to the throne, to His throne. So what again, what encouragement to these 11 men? 
What encouragement to all of us in an affliction-filled world. We have a Father who loves us, hears us, invites us to call upon His name. When you think of asking Him, Jesus says, ask Him. We think, maybe, maybe we think of those, those big things in our life. Like those times when we really, man, this is some huge decision, this crossroads in your life, and, and it's this way or it's this way, this is a big decision. Okay, can I ask, oh yes, I can ask the Father about this. I have this access. We think like that, or, or some major crisis, crisis in our life hits, and so, okay, now's the time I ask the Father. That, yes, those are times we, we go to God and we ask of Him. But that's not, that's not the extent of it. To use the words of the psalmist, God is our refuge. He's our ever-present refuge. He wants us to regularly run to Him. That's the idea of this. That's in the context. To call upon Him in all of our troubles and afflictions. and We're constantly going to the Father. Not on occasion wondering, man, is this really, does God really want me to ask this or not? And I don't know how to pray about this big decision and every once in a while those things come up. No, it's just this constant stream of going to our Father and begging for help. It's the normal stuff of life. Help me guard my tongue against, against, in this difficult conversation that I'm about to have, Lord. Please help. Help me to be patient with my son. As I walk in you to, to, to discipline a child. Help, help guard my heart from temptation to lust when I sit down at my, at my uh, internet, you know, web-connected computer to do my homework tonight. Help guard my heart, Lord. Keep my heart from discouragement after that discouraging news. You know, this is just constantly, Father, go. We just, we run to Him. We constantly take our needs to Him, and ask of our Father, and he, 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 he delights in that. So, so Jesus says, take heart. You're not alone in this trouble-filled world. You're never alone. You have a Father who wants you to ask of Him. You have, you have the clearly revealed Word of God. You have direct access to the Father in prayer. And when you fail, like the disciples will, they'll be scattered in fear. We saw in verse 32. We'll read that in just a moment again. But, but Jesus is saying, you can still... Come to the Father and ask in Jesus' name. You get that? Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you've stumbled and tripped up spiritually in a big way. You've given in to temptation and, and you, you don't come to the Father on the basis of your religious performance. You come on the basis of Jesus' performance for His purpose, for His glory. So the devil will come to you in a time of spiritual failure and he'll, he'll whisper to you, you have no right to pray to God. God. God won't listen to you. He's sneering at you. Don't bother him with your phony, hypocritical praying right now. You get your act cleaned up and then you can maybe talk to God. That's, that's, that's lies. Jesus encouraged these men who he knows are about to fail big time. With the promise that they can go directly to a Father who loves them. And will hear them because of Christ's finished work on the cross. That's a great encouragement to us. Third reason we should take heart in a trouble-filled world. We have this clear communication about the Father. We have the privilege of prayers. Third, we are loved by the Father. We are loved by the Father. Verse 27 
And he's in, in this little word for, he's, he's giving a reason why we can go directly to the Father with our request. That's the immediate context. He says, we, can, we have this privilege of prayer, prayer for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And, and, and so, so it's, that's the immediate, he's saying, this is why you can pray because you have a Father who loves you. But there's profound encouragement that goes even beyond that. He says the Father Himself loves you. It's not just that Jesus loves us and the Father is kind of reluctantly inclined to us. Oh, well, I guess my Son loves you, so I, I guess I can kind of put up with you. That's not it. The Father Himself loves you. He loves you. This, this is the, that little Greek word phileo, uh, love. If, if you've ever heard, if you've heard much preaching at all in your life, you, you've probably heard the distinction between types of love, agape love, phileo love, eros love, and, and those, those tend to be overplayed in preaching. Um, and distinctions are kind of hard and fast made. Agape or agapao love and phileo love, they're both used throughout the New Testament to speak of the Father's love for us. And, and so they seem to be used interchangeably in, in most of these contexts, and I think that's the case here. So I, I don't want to try to make some, some big point upon this particular use of this word, but either way, what this word phileo does imply, it phileo is more that affectionate kind of friendship, love, Again, not that agape love is not that. And that's my point. But I just don't want you to think that the Father is saying, you know, I love you because I have to. Or, I love you, but I just want you to know I really don't like you, or something like that. No, the Father, He loves us. A warm, warm, affectionate love. Now, at first glance, it almost sounds like the Father's love is conditioned upon our love for Christ or our faith in Christ. That's not His point, though. The point is that the Father loves His own. Those who, who love and trust in Christ, we, we know that God is the one who loved us first. He moved toward us before we moved the, the, a millimeter towards Him. God moved towards us in love. That's clear in Scripture. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Verse 19 he adds, We love, we love God because He first loved us. Romans 5, verse 8 and verse 10 God loved us while we were still sinners and enemies of His. So God's love is, is, is the... Uh, our love for Him is, is conditioned upon His love for us. But what, what, what Jesus' point is simply this, is that those who are in Christ, those who believe in Christ, trust in Him, love in Christ, just know the Father loves you. He loves you. He's, he's reminding these men, again, who are about to stumble and fall. He's reminding these men who are going to face a, a, a world of tribulation and of, and of affliction. He's reminding them of the special love relationship that the Father has with them. They're loved by the Father. And again, even though He knows exactly what they're about to do, they're going to deny His Son. They're going to scatter. They're going to flee. They're going to give up hope. The Father still has set His special love on these who are about to get tripped up and who are about to stumble badly. And again, what encouragement that is to us. Even when we fail, the Father's love never, ever ceases. 
Again, it's not dependent upon our performance. It's dependent upon Christ. And so you can take heart in whatever affliction you're walking through right now. You are steadfastly loved by your Heavenly Father. I can't tell you why you're walking through whatever sorrows you're walking through. That's not where the greatest comfort is going to come and being able to say, well, now I can see exactly what God is doing in this and I can see why this is happening and what God's plans are in in this sorrow. I can't tell you that. I don't know. Some of the some of the some of the stuff you guys are walking through, I, I'm I weep and pray for you, and I have no idea why, no idea. But I can't. While I can't explain what God is doing through your circumstances, I, I can assure you, if you're in Christ, that the Father, God Almighty, the Creator, Sustainer of all things, Lord of Lords, Kings, He loves you. <laughs> he loves you affectionately, warmly loves you. He is not capricious towards you. There's a fourth reason we can take heart in the midst of a trouble-filled world. It's in verse 28. And it's that we stand in this stream of God's salvation plan. I'll repeat that. Because I did not send my outline to the sound room. So... I realized just a moment ago that the words are not bound on the back screen, which means they're not on the front screen, and that's totally my fault. Um, fourth point is we stand in the stream of God's salvation plan. He says in verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now you may just kind of read that quickly and and. I mean, I confess, early this week, just kind of reading through the passage, I didn't really see, just kind of seems simple, seems concise, just move on. But this is so profound. Jesus is using this economy of words here, and he's really summarizing in a few words God's whole sovereign, eternal, redemptive plan. This is, this is fantastic. Look at, look at each of these parts. We see Christ's deity, His pre-existence. I, I came from the Father. Points to His eternal glory with the Father. I've existed before all things. Jesus had glory with the Father before the world existed. We'll see Him pray this in, in, the, in the next chapter, in verse 5 of John 17. We saw how the Gospel of John began. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just in the beginning, eternal existing deity. He told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 13, No one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so, it, so we see this, this, the, the, the truth of Christ. It's not just that He's this human teacher. No, He is, he is the Son of God. He's part of the, the, the second person of the triune God. And he, he, is, he is descended. But what that also highlights is the love of Christ. He he left the glories of heaven to dwell on this sin-cursed earth. And that brings us to the second statement. We see Christ's incarnation. I have come into the world. He came to earth as a baby and and, and lived as a real man. Philippians 2 verse 7. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We see the condescension of our Lord. Humble himself and becoming like a man. We see his crucifixion. 
Now I am leaving the world. And, and, and what Jesus has shown throughout this upper room discourse is what he means by departing is that he means he's dying. He's, he's, he's referring to his death. He's leaving the world, but his departure is by way of the cross. He, he, went, he goes to the cross voluntarily too. This is, this is what He is doing. It's all of His volition. It's not like He is constrained to the Father's plan, but the Son is reluctant. No, He says, this is what I'm doing. I came from heaven. I, I came into the earth. I'm leaving the earth. And I'm going back to my Father. His own volition. It's his own. He wasn't crucified because the Jewish leaders got fed up with him and said, "Enough's enough. We're doing away with you." That's not it. The son laid down his life for the sheep, and so we see this again. This condescension of Christ. The, the cross is the very reason he came into the world in the first place. You go on to the next verse in Philippians two. There, verse eight. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point. Of death, even death on a cross. And so it's the path of suffering that brings his death and departure from the world. And then finally we see Christ's resurrection and ascension. And I am going to the Father. The Father would approve of Christ's work on the cross, raise him from the dead, and Jesus will resume his rightful place at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so you see this, this succinct statement of, of this this redemptive plan of God in one verse. Again, the context is Jesus is, is telling His disciples, take heart. Take heart. I know, I know you see your circumstances and they're right here and, and all you can see is this, this, this immediate uh, affliction, this immediate pressure in your life, this immediate diagnosis, this immediate loss, this immediate confusion and, and decision, and, and, and you, that's all you see, but just, just take heart. There is more going on. There is, this, there is this plan that's been in place from before the foundation of the world, and it's happening. And we can say, it's happened. And, and, and so we, we need to see it in our lives in that larger sense that we stand in this stream of God's, God's salvation plan. Well, well, we can't make sense of the chaos in our world and, and we can't make sense and be certain of, uh, of the chaos in our lives. We can, we can be certain of God's sovereign plan of redemption. And we stand in the stream of it. The, the redemptive plan of God wasn't simply reactionary. Again, it originated with the triune God before the foundation of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4 and following there, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So whatever... Whatever trials we're walking through, whatever ways we fail and stumble, we can be certain that our salvation doesn't depend upon our perfection or our performance, but upon God's sovereign love and grace. He's done it. And we, we benefit from it and we stand in it. We can take heart. That brings us to the last reason we can, can take heart in the trouble-filled world. And it's this, that we are on the winning side of a war that's already won. We're on the winning side of a war that's already won. 
the disciples have one more opportunity to stick their feet in their mouth, and they do it here. <laughs> um, Jesus told them, again in verse 25, there's a time of clarity coming for you. You're going to get it, and the lights are going to come on, and they think that it's already arrived. Like, man, that was quick. You know, we got it now, Jesus. They, they, it's like lightning struck their brains, and now everything makes sense to them. Like teenagers, suddenly they, they hit an age and they think they know everything, right? Sorry. I'll hear about that one later. Um, verse 29. His disciples said, Ah! See! Behold! Look! Is the word here. Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now I'm saying that with a greater amount of sarcasm than probably is intended. But in, in a sense the disciples have advanced in knowledge here. The upper room discourse was not a waste of time. It was not all in vain. Jesus wasn't just wasting his breath instructing these men. No, there has been, there has been some growth and understanding during these these. Uh, minutes, hours together in that room with Jesus without question. Jesus' teaching has left its mark on these men unquestionably. They're slowly growing to grasp and growing in their grasp of who Jesus is, why He came. They're starting to see His deity shining through the, the, the veil of His humanity more and more clearly. So for the, for the moment at least, they're, they're at least convinced that Jesus is omniscient. You know all things. He's all-knowing. And we, we know that Jesus, they, they had to pick up on this because Jesus knew the things that they thought. We've seen this in the upper room. We've seen it throughout other parts of the ministry. They're thinking something and Jesus answers the very question that they're asking in their mind. Alright, well, that's different. And so you know all things. They, Jesus knew what they were mumbling to each other around the table that night under their breaths. And so they're reasoning, only God is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient, so Jesus must be God, and being God, He must have come from God. That's, that's their reasoning. It's not bad reasoning. And so the, the lights aren't, all the lights aren't on for them yet, but they're brighter than they've been at this point. But they still don't really get it. They still don't really get Him. That, the time hasn't come for clarity yet, full clarity. So Jesus answers them, verse 31. Do you now believe... Now, I think there's a note uh, or a hint of loving sarcasm here in Jesus' response, if there is such a thing. Oh, really? (laughs) You believe now, do you? Um, Now, on the one hand, Jesus accepts their confession of faith here, of of Jesus' omniscience, who He is, at face value, but but He also warns them against what I would call overconfidence. He's saying, your faith... My friends, it's real. But it's not what it should be. Is it really mature yet? Is it, is it, has it really full grown? Will, you, will this anchor hold in the storms of life that you're about to experience? Do you really believe? That's, what he's, that's kind of the idea of this, I think. He isn't denying the presence of genuine faith in the hearts of his disciples. He's not questioning whether they're saved or not or something like that. He's stressing the flawed character and the immaturity of that faith. So he says, verse 32, Behold, again, the same word, just a, uh, a 
before it was, behold, ah, you're not speaking in figures of speech. Now, behold, look, Jesus says, get this. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. The hour is coming. It's still future, but it's very near. He says it has come. The wheels are already in motion. Judas is already moving. He's already acting. He's plotting with the council as we speak. And the prediction has two parts. First, he says, they will all be scattered to their homes. And this is in fulfillment of Zechariah 13.7. And we see Jesus reference this, this fulfillment in Matthew 26.31. Jesus said to him, to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, and he quotes Zechariah there, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so to say that they all scattered and, then, and they went home is, is a way of saying, you know what, they, you're going to all lose hope. You're not going to be hanging on to, the, to my words thinking, but Jesus said he would rise on the third day. You know, he's saying, you're going to go home. You're going to give up kingdom work. You're going to go back to preaching or to fishing. You give up preaching and go back home. You'll be convinced it's all over. And that's something. And then he says the second part is they will leave Jesus alone. And the emphasis in the in the in the Greek here is on me. It's me you will leave alone. He's stressing his own suffering. What's important is not how this is going to affect him. What Jesus is saying, and Jesus is highlighting his own suffering. The more and more, the closer he gets to cross, the more and more isolated he'll be, more, the more alone he'll be. He will be forsaken by his closest friends. He will leave him all alone. But however badly Jesus is abandoned by his friends, he is assured of his Father's support. He says in the verse... Um, into verse uh, 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. It, it, again, you you think of this is Jesus' farewell words to his disciples, and we're going to get to verse 33, and, and it's amazing how different verse 32 and 33, if we just stopped here, we'd think, oh, man. But he's going to end on this note, I've overcome the world. But just hang on that for a second. It's interesting that Jesus, in, and again, in these last words, he throws his wet blanket on this enthusiastic confession of faith on the, of the disciples. We know that you know all things, Jesus. And instead of affirming it and instead of propping them up and saying, that's good. You know, he still have some other things to learn, but he, he just, he emphasizes the weakness of their faith. They will stumble, they will fall. And it's these same men who will be the very foundation stones of the church. One commentator said it's, it's part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith or courage or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. That's good. This isn't just true of the apostles though. This is true throughout church history. This is true with us. That, 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 that the church is full of men and women who have, as Pastor Dow will talk about tonight, feet of clay. 
And so many of the saints who we look back in church history have done heroic feats for, 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 the, for the church and the advance of the gospel. They failed miserably at times and, and in some parts of their lives. Just a couple of examples and again, plug for tonight. Come back tonight and we're, we'll see some of the reformers and some of their faults. And what do we, how do we, how do we deal with that? We, these men that we lift up and are so thankful for, but then they had these glaring faults. Like, what in the world? We're kind of embarrassed by that. How do we handle that? But, but even more recently, like David Livingston, he was used by God to open Africa to the gospel. And we read his biographies and we, we know that name and we quote him and, you know, he was a loner and he had trouble getting along with people. I mean, he really, he was constantly in conflict with fellow gospel workers. He did not have a good reputation in terms of peacemaking. He virtually abandoned his wife and children. And, and, and they suffered greatly without him. That was his last dying regret. Is he regretted that he had, he had not given time to his family. So, feet of clay. Or uh, C.T. Studd, Charles Studd, he was, he was an evangelist, missionary, theologian, early part of the 20th century. He was famous for the quote, probably, he's quoted, uh, you'll hear him quoted pretty regularly, but if Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. I'm sure you've heard that quote, probably missions conferences and those things. But you know what, his wife was sick, like really sick. And he left her and went off to Africa without her. He returned once in the final 16 years of their life, of her life, to see her. His intense uh, dedication to advance the gospel among the, among the unreached peoples of the world, it made him impatient and tolerant and, and, and intolerant of anybody who didn't share his zeal and dedication. He thought was not as dedicated as he was. He alienated everyone around him, including his own daughter and son-in-law. The mission he founded, which was very vital in seeing the gospel go out, eventually dismissed him. I mean, there's, there's lots of examples we could see, and, and those are kind of church, more recent church history. You, you have people in your own life you could say the same thing. And I know, Howard, again, come back tonight, and we'll talk about some of the leaders of the Reformation. My point is not to take pot shots at these Servants of the Lord. It's not to excuse my own sin by pointing out theirs. That's not my point. But there's encouragement in knowing that God is skillful at using flawed people. I'm thankful for that. He doesn't need perfect instruments to accomplish His purposes. That's again, not to excuse or make light of our sins. But we all, we are all flawed. So, he's, so, so there's, there's this encouragement that we're on the winning side of a war that's already been won. And, and to say that we're on the winning side of this war doesn't mean that it's, we're, it, we're winning because we fought so admirably. The battle is not ours, it's God's. Verse 33, I, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I've said these things, all the things that Jesus told them that night, everything He told them about Himself, about the Spirit, about His Father, and, 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 and about themselves really. But He said these things to them that they might have peace in Him. Peace. 
at peace. We, you know, there's different nuances of this word. We can talk about that objective peace of God that we are reconciled with God in a Romans 5, 1 and 2 sort of way. So that's, that's probably part of this. But there's also that subjective peace, that comforting assurance, that inner peace. And the emphasis here and in 1427 that we saw several weeks ago, it seems to be on that subjective side of peace. I'm not saying it's unrelated. It's founded upon that objective peace. But, it, but it's contrasted with that tribulation in the world. But in me, you'll have peace. And, and, and don't miss this. The peace that Christ came for us to have is found in Him. Well, prepositional phrase. In me. The world is filled with all kinds of ways for people to have, discover inner peace. And that's, that's not... The end justifies the means here. So you'll hear things. Just empty your mind of all that negative thinking. You need to find peace. Or go to the spa. Have a massage. Go shopping. Spend money. Take a beach vacation. Eat your favorite ice cream in very large quantities. And find peace. Um, There are all kinds of false false refuges that you can place your faith in. And in and, and, and an attempt to find rest for your soul. But these are just shadows of the true refuge that God has provided in the Son. Jesus says, I've come that you might have peace in me. In me. And it's on this basis that Paul would later write in, Ephesians, in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, words we know well. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, in prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus that's the peace he's talking about so we can we can expect tribulation in this world because of our relation to Jesus John 15:21 we'll be hated in this world because we're identified with Christ But in this trouble-filled world, we can also know quiet soul peace in Christ. In the world you have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome. I have conquered the world. He's overcome the world and he's defeated the prince of the world. Now he's speaking as if it's already happened. He's talking about, I think, the cross here, and the, but he's showing the certainty of the, of the battle that's ahead for him and the victory that's going to come. He's speaking, again, past tense is something that's yet to come for him as he's talking with his disciples. But the decisive battle will be waged and won through his death and resurrection. He's saying, take heart. It's done. I've overcome the world. The world will continue its attacks, but those who are in Christ Jesus will share in his victory. They can take heart. We read this earlier in Romans 8, 37. And in all these things, and all those sufferings, all those trials, all those tribulations, we, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. If Jesus conquers, we, we share in that victory because we're in Him. So He ends this, this upper room discourse, this upper room conversation really, because it's not like He sits the disciples down in chairs and says, alright, listen to me lecture for the next 45 minutes or a couple hours. No, he, there's this back and forth that we've seen throughout this this upper room discussion around the table as Jesus is teaching and instructing them. But he's, he's, it ends on this loud and clear note of victory. That's how he, how he finishes. And, but he's going to leave that room. 
He's going to go on a death march. He's going to Gethsemane where he'll be arrested and then he'll be crucified. But he says, last words to them, be of good cheer. You can be of good cheer right in the midst of affliction and pressure and tribulation because Jesus has overcome the world through his death and resurrection. Well, can you, can you, brothers and sisters, is this just theoretical? Is it just for the 11? Can they, yeah, okay, maybe they could have peace in this world of tribulation, but is that really possible for me today? Can I, can I have peace as a believer in Jesus Christ when, regardless of the afflictions that come in my life? The answer is yes, you can. And you and I have seen this. We've seen brothers and sisters in this church who've, who've demonstrated this. This doesn't mean, again, it's, it's not plastering on smiles, plastering smiles on our faces and posting pithy little statements about how happy and wonderful everything is on social media. That's not it. It's, it's an honest faith that acknowledges the, the really intense pain we're going through. And the afflictions, this is wrong, this is bad, this is broken, it's not supposed to be like this. So it's not a denial of pain and affliction and suffering. Jesus says, in this world you will have afflictions. He doesn't say in this world, it's not, gonna, don't, it's not that big of a deal. Just get over it. You know, I've, I'm ro- I rose from the dead, it's not going to be that bad. No, he says, you're going to face those things. We acknowledge the, it's an honest faith again that acknowledges the intensity of our afflictions, yet it stays anchored to Christ. In the midst of it. Our souls take refuge in Him. And so that's, that's one of the many things that is. That's, that's one that, that speaks a lot to one of us. That helps me when I see a brother or sister who's walking through something and there's, there's this peace in Christ in the midst of the storm. I am, my heart is helped. So there's a ministry to one another. There's, it's, it's, it's glory for God. It's good for them. But it's also great advertising for the gospel. It's, it's a, it speaks something to the reality of, of Jesus Christ. It's a great apologetic, we might say. Apologetic, or we talk about apologetics, talking about that field of, of study where we're, where we're defending the faith. And so you're supplying arguments for, to answer attacks that come against the Bible or against the gospel or against a Christian faith or something like that. And so it means offering a reasonable defense for Christianity. That's what we're talking about, apologetics. Well, there's a verse in Scripture that is kind of the life verse for you apologists. I know we have a few that are really inclined to this, and this is an area you really enjoy studying and reading on. But First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, one you'll know well. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So always be ready to make that defense and yet, yet don't be a jerk about it. So, so apologists, you, this is a verse you know well. On its own, that's a great verse of scripture. That's deserving of refrigerator magnet status. And that's, that's a good one. But it is much more powerful in context. If you would read it in its context, it's, it's even more poignant. The preceding verse makes it clear who Peter has in mind when he gives this exhortation. He says in 1 Peter 3, verse 14, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So 1 Peter 3.15, is it's not about academic settings. It's not, it's not God's not dead kind of movie scene where you're in a college classroom. That's not the picture that Peter has in mind when he wrote uh, verse 15, being able to give a defense. He's talking to suffering people. People in the intense fires of affliction. And he's saying, responding well during afflictions, and it will open doors for you to share about your hope in Christ. And he doesn't that the case? We've seen this so many times. Having peace in Christ while we're afflicted in this world will stand out in a very stark way. Well, brothers and sisters, I I, I pray. I know I know many of you. You're walking through. The, the sorrows and the afflictions now, and and, and don't don't take the words of Christ as being some trite statement, but take these words as as a, an anchor for your soul. Let me read it again. Jesus said, "I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world." Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that the war is won. And the battle is won. I know there's still mop up work left to do until you return. But thank you that, that, that full atonement has been made. The enemy of our souls, the devil, has been crushed. Serpent's been crushed. Death has been defeated. And so thank you for, thank you for victory. In Jesus Christ our Lord. And God, may the, may, may the peace and joy just flow from that God to us. Not in a theoretical, hypothetical way, but in a real tangible way. May the peace of Christ be ours this week, today. Even. And so I pray for any that, that came in today with real troubled hearts. May they leave with greater courage in Christ, facing real, intense, not pretend pain and suffering, but in a way that that there's peace in Christ. There's joy because the tomb is empty. And so God, give give may, may your spirit actively minister to hearts right now, even as we sing, God, like a like a river. It's not like a little trickle but that this river is God's perfect peace. And may it come to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.